Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent New Zealand politics and media podcast. I'm Kyle Church. I'm joined by my co-host Philip Bannerstad. Welcome on this Tuesday evening, Philip. Yeah, thanks. Good to good to have another episode on, in the week for a change. Like I feel like it's been it's been tough recently. We've only been getting out weekend episodes, but yeah, nice to have another week episode. Lots of people sick um, and rescheduling, or just exhausted and busy. Uh, but tonight we do have a guest. Um, really happy to have on the podcast Green MP Julianne Genta. Welcome to One of Two Hundred, Julianne. Kia ora. So I'm going to immediately pass it over to you, Philip, um, because this is more uh, your area of expertise than mine. Um, but we're broadly hoping to talk about left wing Green Party um, theories of change, uh, whether it's electoral or activist. Uh, there's been a lot of this kind of stuff in the news recently. Um, especially with some of the leadership discussions, um, pulling the Green Party into the media spotlight a bit more than uh, they generally are. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it's not, I don't think um, from the perspective of the left or from the perspective of the Green Party, that much has changed for the last few years. But, you know, as kind of establishment media narratives go, these things have to have kind of uh, peaks and troughs and nadirs. And for some reason, it's, it's only when the people entirely external to the Green Party or entirely external to the left notice these things that they become, you know, quote unquote issues. So recently there's been this issue about uh, James Shaw not being, you know, reinstated as leader of the Green Party at the last AGM. And that seems to have um, instigated, I suppose, a bit of a conversation in the least generous use of that term, I guess. Um in terms of understanding, you know, the value of being in government versus not being in government and what is kind of incrementalism versus radicalism and all these kind of old hacky conversations that have been going on since time immemorial. And on one level, I find these conversations quite boring because they come down to kind of trite, um, you know, values-driven kind of observations. And we all, we all fall at different points on this spectrum. So just to kind of get that out of the way, I think it's yeah, don't hold back. Don't hold back, Philip. It's stupid, I think, to draw any kind of um, like seesawing kind of equivalence about these different things. None of us, none of us think that like everything can be achieved by one thing or the other. I think that's fair to say. In terms of everyone who has you know any level of power analysis on the left or in the Green Party, and that's how it gets presented in general in the mainstream media. But um, in terms of uh, what's actually been achieved and you know what the failings have been or the successes have been like there are interesting conversations to be had there about um, theories of change that can work and theories of change that have uh, I guess chinks in the armor to them so just to I guess pass the baton to you Julianne um, how would you frame I guess the the conversation that's been going on for the last month or so or do you think anything's changed if if not I, like I don't think anything in particular has changed it's just been that a, a certain threshold has been crossed has been how I've been talking about it so feel free to disagree or what do you think's changed in the last year or two well I think that as the climate crisis becomes more and more evident people are rightly feeling increasingly panicked and those who are aware of the issue and who for whom it's really front and center like and and that would probably include people you know it would include me and and James weirdly um because 
you know, I did some of this climate reality communications training many years ago, maybe that was 2014. And so it was, you know, going around giving slideshow talks to groups all around New Zealand around climate change. Um, and it's just suddenly it feels like it's accelerated. Uh, the advantage of that is that electorally it's become a much bigger part of the debate. And that's a great thing because even in 2014, the Green Party did not campaign on climate change as one of its three big priority issues because it wasn't important enough to the electorate in 2014. And by 2017, that had changed. And now, obviously, you've got the all this work program in government, everybody's framing everything around emissions reduction. And yet at the same time, it feels like it's, you know, almost too late because pretty much everything that's happening now really needed to be happening 20 years ago or 30 years ago. <laughs> and so, so I think that for a lot of activists, it's really depressing to see the government finally talking about climate change, but still the actions fall so short of what is really needed to reduce emissions. And it's not just climate change, there's also massive biodiversity crisis. And I think it's worth putting those two things together because you could in theory have a solution to climate change, not really, but in theory you could have one that um, doesn't really address biodiversity loss. And I think that if you do that, it would be a huge mistake. And so your response to climate change has to address the ecological crisis broader than just climate change. Um, anyway, I think people are impatient and they're feeling panicked. And as happens a lot of times in the left and with people who are really passionate and understand these issues a lot, in a way, the biggest enemy becomes the people closest to you who are not doing enough, as opposed to David Seymour and the ACT Party, who could be a full coalition partner in a national-led government next term. And uh, they are basically climate deniers. I mean, they just sort of don't say they are, but they definitely don't think it's important to address these issues and would take them quite a bit backwards. So, so on the one hand, I totally understand everyone's frustration. On the other hand, I also think, and I think it's healthy and useful to have this debate and to express criticism and to be pushing people to go uh, for much further. Um, but, you know, I'm sorry, I've gone right out there and put an opinion out, no, <laughs> which is, yeah. no, which is, this is not just framing it. This is like, yeah, yeah. No, um, you can look at what's happening right now and you can have two different perspectives, multiple different perspectives on it. But if I was just to oversimplify it as glass half full, glass half empty, some of the, it is somewhat just a question of perspective on whether you think this is catastrophic, catastrophically bad, not good enough, absolutely have to change something. Or you think, well, we're getting somewhere and we need to go much further. And how do we do that? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, okay, I'm going to take a maybe more critical stance than I have in real life, because I think it's probably more generative to this conversation. Um, but for example, what I often hear James say when he's criticized in terms of uh, not having gone far enough is that like this government's done more than any other government in history, blah, 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 on climate change, right? Which to me comes off as kind of a cop out, because like, if that's your standard, given like the state of reality and the state of what previous governments have done, then 
like what's the point in this conversation right sure like you can acknowledge that we've done better than nothing we've got, we haven't gone backwards compared to previous governments i mean you know on some metrics we have gone backwards compared to what we need to you know it depends how you judge these things right i don't want to get too much into the weeds but yeah. no, it's, it's exactly and it's like the government saying every year this is the you know the most yeah. investment we've ever had in health and education and nominally that is true but you know relative to the population relative to the need relative to the cost of delivering those services yeah. is it an actual improvement or you know i mean national was able to say that when in real terms there were cuts they were cutting exactly exactly yeah. you know and we have these conversations about you know since 1990 levels or since 2010 levels depending on how you're measuring these things a lot of these things are getting worse like agriculture emissions all this all this stuff right huaka kanoa kind of failures um so it does like it grates when james yeah. says this is the best you know this is the best thing since sliced emissions or whatever the new thing is right which is it's very painful to hear as someone both on the left and like involved in the green party who wants to see like radical action on climate change um to hear those things from someone who is as you say like much closer connected to where we would um position ourselves ideologically and you know, in terms of having values that align 95% with a lot of the stuff we say, but that's very frustrating when, when the, it is. It is very frustrating. It is. And yeah, I, I hear that. And, um, and I certainly wouldn't describe what the current government is doing as, uh, you know, as good as it, I mean, as very good on, climate on transport on you know i mean it's especially on transport since nz up um it's been just kind of a tragedy to watch it unfold because we had a really good government policy statement we had cabinet agreement to that in 2018 and i was amazed at the time um but unfortunately um you know uh, labor made a decision that they needed to spend some money on highways and they picked like the absolute worst highways and then they've just been blowing out in cost and it's just like it's a political disaster it's a transport disaster it's you know fiscally it's a problem industry-wise it's a problem and I'm not gonna resile from saying that and even when I was a minister I wrote a piece for the spinoff about you know, it wasn't quite so negatively framed. I think the thing that I struggle with and, you know, and I, I hear you, um, I think it's really important that when we speak to our base and our supporters that we acknowledge that we acknowledge whether people are, how people are feeling and that they're feeling distressed about insufficient government action in these areas and that we then are really authentic and honest or we try to be as honest as we can about how hard we are working and where we see the opportunities to change things for the better. And like the one thing I would say is we have not yet had, never have we had a government where the Greens votes were needed and without New Zealand first. So we don't really know what we're capable of negotiating in that scenario. And so I'm still holding out for that in 2023 as like, this is it guys this time we're really going to be able to do something and so so while you know and i and the other problem i think is that um and this is this is this is really tricky is like the human psychology bit 
And I know uh, Russell Norman wrote a piece on his uh, Greenpeace blog about um, kind of the whole issue with ag and Hewaka Kinoa and um, how it wasn't going far enough, you know, or how it was basically a sham and greenwashing. And the one thing that wasn't really um, substantiated in that was the assumption that when the Greens talk positively about the action we're taking on climate, the assumption is, well, if they're saying that this is good, then people will think we're doing enough and we won't need to do more. And therefore, there won't be the demand to do more. But in reality, and this is it's it's sort of backed up by some psychology, it doesn't like the polls seem to show that there's more confidence in the Greens and that there's more demand for people to do something on climate change. And almost by if we were being if we weren't being positive about the ability of government to do something about climate change, then we might be undermining people's faith in voting for the Greens or doing or government doing anything about climate change. And so um, it just might be the case that although, you know, and I understand like uh, he wants to hear the truth, you want to hear the truth from your representatives. And I totally understand that. And I think we need to do better at that. But also weirdly at like that in that broader like population voting public, weirdly people going around, James being climate minister, there being a green climate minister and things like somehow it's socializing the whole idea amongst people who aren't hardcore climate activists that the Greens can be in government. We can do something about climate change. Actually, maybe we need to do even more. It might actually like and I'm, I'm just putting it out there as like the this the glass half full version of looking at the situation if the polls showed something different then i would definitely be like no we we're going to have to do something different but because it looks like we're if we can carry on this way and give people confidence then we can have a labor green potentially to party maori coalition that is able to actually do much more much faster than what the previous two terms of government have been able to do but sure okay but to push to push back on um the kind of like one thing i 100 percent agree with on that is that we can't like foreclose the idea of like a democratic response right we need people to feel empowered to um have their will felt i suppose through through the kind of i, I guess traditionally democratic kind of means of funneling their ideas through a party if that's how they you know see themselves represented um but the the idea that that's possible versus the idea that that's likely or that's what they're going to get seems like a a risk that uh, maybe there is data to support that but i haven't seen it i haven't seen any polls that support the idea that um it seems like a genuine risk to me that people who were um climate you know climate first kind of voters in 2017 and 2020 and haven't seen what they wanted to see I, I don't know how to convince those people anymore that voting for the Greens is the best way to solve climate issues, right? Because they've seen what the Greens um, negotiated in 2017, which I thought was extremely weak, um, and what the Greens negotiated in 2020, which, you know, we didn't have the power to negotiate anything. Um, so there wasn't really anything. It was just James kind of sitting at the front of a Labour Party budget of climate um, announcements. Um, which he's said himself, right? That's not that's not me like putting words in his mouth. He said that like most of what he said has just been Labour Party policy with 
green kind of branding and he's pushed a few like internal specific kind of political uh, climate ministry stuff further than it probably would have gone. But overall, you know, let's live in a world for a brief second where David Parker's Minister of Climate Change, how different does that look really, right? Probably not a world away from what we have right now, to my mind anyway. Where it would make a difference is 2023. So like if the Greens, because, and and the other thing is the maths, and I know you probably, I mean, people might find this really annoying, but like if like the constituency for like really radical climate action and people are pissed off at the Greens, if, I mean, it's probably like one, two percent of the electorate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if that's going to Te Parti Maori and we're getting 5% off labor, then we're all in a better position to be able to negotiate from labor. Because if you just had labor owning the space, then, um, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe it wouldn't make it. I mean, maybe it doesn't make a difference, but I, I don't think a labor climate minister would be better uh, for sure. And I definitely think that the Greens having uh, a role in this government like it just helps just remember like we have like we've never pulled higher than 11 percent, and that was when labor was quite weak um and in the past two elections you know we're six and eight percent um and now we're polling consistently over eight percent closer to ten percent and so i think it's it's kind of like about getting the electorate comfortable with the idea that actually the greens are a party they can vote for and the more votes we get, the more MPs we get, the more change we're able to negotiate um, at the negotiating table. In 2017, we really had no power either, because if we didn't, like, we just didn't want another national New Zealand, a national New Zealand first government was the alternative, right? And that was clearly going to be quite bad. So um, we're, we're just in this situation where it's like, how do we grow our own power and electoral base without having kind of the profile of you get so much more profile with ministers you're giving the climate issue more profile and the greens more uh profile and so then uh, there has been some polling like um the insurance industry did polling on climate and they did say that people more and more people think that the government needs to do something about it and that the government's not doing enough so i mean to me, that's all encouraging, right? Because it it means if climate change is a major issue, people are willing to vote on, and the Greens are seen to and enough of the electorate as the party to vote for, then that puts us in the best position to actually negotiate change. I the only to... other thing I'd say, sorry, no, I'll let you go, and then I'll come back in on a okay. second. Uh, um, this might take it in a different direction, um, but we'll see how we go. I tend to agree with the electoral normalization arg- argument. You know, the the more that the Greens are associated with the government, uh, the more likely they are to be voted uh, for as an alternative government, you know, in, in the future, um, or as government partners. I, I think that's a fair um, kind of electoral strategy. Some, where some of the problem or challenge, I guess, for me comes from is, uh, it's twofold. One is the appearance of closeness with Labour damaging um any climate change uh, kind of brand or intent um, that the the Green Party are trying to um, take advantage of electorally. Um, and I, do, I mean take advantage of there in, in purely neutral terms. Um, and alongside that, the history of 
other Green parties um, and, you know, all the risks of uh, referring to uh, global political uh, situations. Um, we'll throw those out the window. Um, we're just going to do it. Um, where a, a Green Party or a presumably left party, um, I'm thinking like in Canada, um, with uh, Trudeau's government and the NLP, where a whole bunch of their policy is taken, taken on, uh, but they are seen as wins for the major party um, rather than for the minor party. Um, while, you know, any any of the bad stuff is is kind of tends to be foisted on the minor party. And I think um, James has been correct um, when he's made his arguments. Oh, and, you know, and other people in the Greens have been correct as well when they've uh, made arguments about, you know, whether the Greens are one of the few parties that hasn't gone straight back out of Parliament as a minor, as a minor party. Um, you know, I think there is um, a lot of truth to that and a lot of importance to that. Uh, but we also haven't been in a position uh, in New Zealand where the Greens have been able to say, that was ours, we negotiated that, um, and it's because of us that it was implemented uh how how do you get past those challenges um while drawing closer to labor um and not particularly having an opposition voice over the last three years maybe would say um interesting question i so the way that i see this is i just want to talk about small parties and surviving government and um, I think the reason it's not in, inevitable that small parties can't survive government. Obviously, the Greens have defied that, but um, it's mainly that small parties uh, divide and they fall apart when they're in government. And so, the most important thing for us is to not fall apart and not be, you know, divided because that's what you know. The alliance fell apart; they divided over the issue over war in Af Afghanistan. Um, the Maori Party. Um, also, you know, you had uh, Mana split off from the Māori Party. Uh, before that, New Zealand First um, had a bunch of members, like, you know, they basically had a split. And um, United Future was never going to be a thing anyway. It was just like a one-term one wonder. Um, <laughs> so so I think, I think that it is more about, like, I think the most important thing for the Greens was to not, fall apart and that's the risk of us being in government is that the party itself gets um you know splits because people get pissed off with each other over compromises we've had to make in government and that would be the thing that hurts us um interestingly some of the international green parties who were in government and then were out of parliament like the green party and the irish sorry the german green party and the irish green party they're back you know like they were out for a term they got back in and now they're back in government um, the German Greens were out for quite a while. They weren't in government because of the Grand Coalition, but they're back now. and They're now the highest polling party, I think, in federally in Germany. So, um, but I feel like I'm not totally addressing, I'm not addressing your question here. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say was, is it worth, is it worth us having ministers? And in the New Zealand context, there is no, other way to make change in that particular space without ministers. 
yes, there's a role for MPs campaigning and doing various things we do, but having been a minister, having been an MP in opposition and sort of a frenemy now of Labour's, um, you know, where I'm, I'm not in opposition, but I'm not, you know, I'm not really in government either, and I can speak my mind. Um, Using and- words like frenemy is really dangerous because someone's going to start writing fan fiction about it now. Um, <laughs> um I I feel I mean I feel like the Greens have been able to be very critical of Labour. Um, we're probably not getting as much airtime in some ways as ACT and National because they're the opposition officially. But on the other hand, we're getting way more media airtime than we would have like twelve years ago. Like so, it's 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 interesting. I know we're probably not getting as much cut through as we would like, but people are certainly working hard at it. Um, and they are they are being very openly critical of labor in our portfolio areas, um, saying where we would be different. I think we have to nonetheless present a kind of united, not united front. No, it's more like an ability to work constructively with them, because that's what we know most of our voters want. And most of the people most likely to vote for us, you know, they want us to work with labor. So you you don't want to be so critical that you drive people away. Um, a lot of people are turned off politics because they don't like the debate. They don't like the negativity. And so it's like, a, like how do you get your ideas out there in a way that's inspiring to people and helping them see it in a positive way while also being honest about the fact that this other party is not doing the things that we think they should. Um, and, that, and then just, just on the minister thing, like there's so many decisions, so many things have happened because we had ministers in the right position last term that we did not negotiate. And and then we never would have gotten into a negotiation. Like like the, and, and we could talk at length about this, but the clean car discount and the clean car um, standard, which are like longstanding Green Party policies, but they were also just absolute necessity like we had to do something because we were we had no standards we had no incentives we were getting kind of the most inefficient vehicles into the country and as long as vehicles are coming into the country we need to try and have a way to get them to be lower emission and these were the policies that were going to work and if i had um if we tried to write that into an agreement with labor and new zealand first it wouldn't have happened but i was able to like just by virtue of my ministerial role, get the work done that was a, and then able to reframe it and convince the Labour Party it was worth considering and then do the, you know, and it's like we actually got to a point where the Labour Party picked up this policy that they were totally opposed to in early, in 2018, they tried to shut down the work on it three times from the Prime Minister's office. Like they were like, we don't want to hear about anything that might increase costs for poor people driving polluting vehicles. And I was like, you know, we have to get this work done and show it's not poor people buying these really polluting vehicles. The most polluting vehicles coming into the country were brand new SUVs and they cost on average 60 grand. Um, so so there's just all this stuff that we can do in those roles. And then there's the the work of getting the public service to do the work that means you can do more stuff because you can't kind of just come in and be like, this is our policy, implement it. Um, they, you actually have to get this whole thousands of people, many of whom you will never talk to directly and you never get to meet. You have to somehow get them in a position where they understand and are willing to implement your agenda and are able to do that. 
And I think that that's where it's particularly worthwhile uh, having green ministers because it will make it easier for us um, having had that continuity, understand how it works and how it's not working to be in a position to make faster changes post-2023 election. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this kind of opens a crack to the door of like one of my bugbears at the moment, which is just the civil service and, you know, treasury in particular, but in general, um, the kind of established inertia behind how these big kind of institutions function, right? These government institutions um, that I, I feel like the left in New Zealand in particular has become kind of allergic to being critical of because we see Wellington as a kind of monolith and that's where the lefties live and this is kind of left liberal milieu of people who most of them work for civil service in these various kind of mid-level roles, right? So you're not allowed to criticise uh, the fact that they're at, from the top down there's quite a kind of managerial, um, fiscally conservative understanding of the world in a lot of these uh, institutions, right? Um, you don't have to say anything about that if you feel uh, differently. No. But what I would say is there's lots of really great, super progressive people who want to make positive changes in the world working in these organizations. And yet uh, you would think, I mean, they'll all have a different perspective on what, where the blockage is. But um, I would think that a lot of people working in these organizations, one who I know quite well actually would say like, that there is like it's the kind of middle managers or the senior managers who you have to convince and that their perspective is how do we get arguments to say we can't do xyz thing that would reduce emissions that's what we want to present to the minister and um one of the one of the real advantages i think of the green ministers and executive um roles because jan logie was in the executive although she wasn't a minister is that um I think we're less susceptible to being captured by official advice. Um, I think that's, I'm sure there's some really good labor ministers who aren't like that, but I think by and large, <laughs> um, they get in and the officials are like, oh, they're give them these really convincing arguments or they say that they're doing the work and they're not really, or, yeah, I mean, and that's not to disparage anyone working in the public service. I mean, I believe in the public service. I believe that it can and should um, be well-funded and well-resourced to deliver the changes that we need to, to make. And I don't think it's currently in a state to do everything we needed to do. Of course. But I mean, this is the, this is the problem, right? I, I believe in the idea of the public service and what they're trying to do, but we're not seeing the outcomes we need to see. So I think it's fine to criticize that from the left. And I feel like there's become this um, allergy to doing so. Like, I think you're the only ex-minister I've ever seen criticize the public service um at all which is wild like how is not how is everyone not just saying look um this institution is not established in the way that it needs to be like it's, it's not even just down to regulatory capture right it's also an institutional problem of the way that these organizations function internally and the way they relate to the idea of like democratic oversight um it's you know almost like a yes minister-esque kind of um, dynamic. It feels like collective cabinet responsibility is basically permanent. And I mean, um, everyone knows that as well. And people will talk about it once they're out of government. This is what people are only allowed to talk about in their biography when they leave uh, politics, right? When they're on to sitting on 20 boards making like $200 million a year or whatever, or the UN, depending on which side of the uh, <laughs> line you sit on, right? 
but it just it it feels like um there needs to be a more i don't know if this is my um internal accelerationist talking but i think there needs to be more of a kind of willingness to have a almost like burn it down mentality when it comes to the the institutional like structures that are being worked with here like it's it's okay to be a bit more i think like anarchic when dealing with these people who have their own like ideologies and um you know power relationships and like they know where they sit and they know where they want to be in in five years and 20 years um and they know they can wait out the next minister of x like i i agree with you that like green ministers have done a pretty good job last term with the power that they had the like little amount of power that they had and another thing that we need to like think about more is the i think you also said this is that the most significant like climate change ministries isn't the climate change ministry it's all the other ones right that actually do the work like that's essentially just setting some targets on paper there are, there are ministries with actual power right that's what we need to be talking about here and it feels kind of like marginalia to be focused on this thing that's essentially like a marking script like that's not that's it's kind of a distraction right well i i think that it's possible and it's not in its current state and uh but the zero carbon act if it's fixed up like if we fix the drafting then that becomes an extra tool that the civil society can use to challenge um government and government institutions like the judicial reviews that have been taken against NZTA and Auckland Transport and um, uh, the Climate Commission. Um, I think that's really useful. And the fact that, you know, the fact that some of the findings have been like, oh, well, they're not legally required to do this. That's actually helpful because it, well, it's not helpful. It's not great, but it does mean that like we can go in and change the law to make it clear so that the courts can be used. I, I think that's the courts are another institution that we're dealing with, which, um, you know, where there's people who um, inevitably have their own perspectives on things that they bring to their judgments. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a different issue, but, um, and I'm not an expert on that, so I won't um, talk about that, but too much, but um yeah, I, I think it is important for us to be able to talk honestly and not denigrate people or public servants in some sort of general way, but rather say the system needs to change and, you know, the system does need to change and it's not totally delivering and it is really tricky. I mean, I think even when you talk about like bringing ag into the ETS, for example, sounds really simple on paper. Um could it have been done? Would it have been done in a meaningful way that would have resulted in the changes we wanted to see um, a few years ago? I don't know. I mean, we I don't know for sure. Like politically, there's definitely some people have the perception that it could have been done early enough in the term that New Zealand First would have supported it. There's another view that says they were never going to support it, just like they were never going to support a capital gains tax or whatever the tax working group recommended. Um but um, it's such a, it, it actually is quite a complex thing to do, to do the accounting around the emissions and the enforcement. And so there is a certain part of like, yes, absolutely. Um, I don't have any problem with like setting up a framework that legally requires people to comply with environmental regulation or pricing. But there is also um, 
a lot of the compliance you need to get um, needs to be uh, like not just at the under the threat of punishment. Um, yeah, I was so, gonna I was gonna say like how much is there a feeling um, maybe among the the caucus, the Green Party, uh, wider the the membership uh, that the climate minister role is somewhat of a poison chalice in that you know there is actually a ministry for agriculture and for transport and then there's MBIE um, which have significantly more power to be changing these things beyond uh, what a minister for climate is able to do um, that uh, Shaw as a minister is beating his head against in some respects. Yeah I don't I mean I definitely think that if we were like pulling four percent or whatever and climate change wasn't um an issue that people were concerned about i would i would be like yeah this is not working we need to walk away from the agreement um but because it looks like because things are looking pretty good it seems like the plan is working and um i guess and this would be my point about the 2017 to 2020 term is that a lot of what we got through wasn't because they needed there's some things where like we were we're like no we're not going to vote for that unless you change certain things i think that was like um was it the counterterrorism stuff gories did some hard out negotiating that was great and um they went to um national and national when you know and they ended up having to make the changes that that we asked them to. Yeah, she but did. There were, there were, yeah, she changed some specifics in the counterterrorism, human rights, um, yeah. like a few different laws that were pretty good. So that's, I mean, there's no question that it's really useful to be able to, you know, have that kind of like, no, we're this is our hard line. This is, you're going to have to do this. But a lot of what we're getting people to do and on board with was through relationships and them feeling confident in us and us, you know, persuading them of things. And one example of that was, do you guys remember the, sorry, this isn't about climate, but the um, family cares situation where under national uh, people had taken a claim under the human rights act saying they were discriminated against because if you were a family member caring for a disabled person, you were paid less than if you were, up, you know, professionally providing that service and national changed the law and said that they couldn't make a claim under the human rights act. And that was called part four, a of the health and disability act. And a whole bunch of international courts found that to be, you know, just abominable and terrible. <laughs> and, um, and I had an associate health role, which James covered for me when I was on maternity leave the first time. And, um, I had a delegation on disability. And so I was pushing this from the beginning. And initially, um, Clark, I think he just didn't know what I was talking about, but I was like, surely we just need to do this thing. And he was like, oh, and then over time, like we just kind of kept being really persistent and James carried on with it. And we were in conversations with the attorney general, Parker and the minister of health and all these officials and the officials and crown law kept coming back and making it impossible. They were like, if you remove this litigation, if, if you remove this part without a litigation bar, the crown will be on the hook for like hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. I mean, they just kept exaggerating the cost and like, and we were just really persistent and we were just really like, but this is just like, 
international courts are criticizing the government for this. Like, we have to do the right thing. Um, I don't think these costs are correct anyway, but even if they were, like, we should still do the right thing. Like, but the whole perspective of Crown Law and a lot of other officials and other parts of um, the ministries, probably after nine years of national especially, thought that their the most important thing what ministers wanted was to protect the Crown from having any financial obligations to people rather than the Crown doing the right thing by disabled people in their fauna. <laughs> And so they were really, and it was the same thing with pay equity. You know, it was like, because the um, Crown's a big employer. They're like, in their happily, don't worry, ministers, we're going to make sure that we're not liable for these, um, you know, paying women what they should have been paid these last two decades or whatever. And I remember being in the meetings and just being like, putting that perspective on it and people being sort of shocked that I was saying, um, you don't think people should be paid what they were legally found to have been owed like you're gonna underpay people because they thought the most important risk to manage was the fiscal risk to the crown mm -hmm. and that's one of those unspoken assumptions that is just with a lot of people not everyone um and the greens were able to bring this other perspective and it wasn't because labor needed our votes it was just from being at the table and being able to make those arguments and put things in that way that over time we were able to get quite considerable changes like removing part 4a of the disability act without a litigation bar and it was a labor minister that was kind of able to take credit for that even though you know i was there with the prime minister when they did the announcement and the policy that the ministry of health has come up with is not sufficiently paying them like they've come up with something else and there's more money but it's still not enough but it's like at least we were able to get that change that was values aligned and i and I guess it's just those things that are harder to communicate. And all I can do is come on a podcast and talk about it with you guys <laughs> and say what in another political system, it might be true that um, outside of government, you can make these sorts of changes. But in New Zealand, with things so heavily concentrated in the central government and even more so all the time, I think the Greens do have to aim to be in there and be in government uh, to the extent that it's not jeopardizing us um, electorally um, and continue to be there so to and try to be as strategic as possible about the changes that we're prioritizing um, in order to enable more change and more of the community to be involved of bringing like the community closer to government and the public service um, I don't think there's any guarantee that we will get everything we want but this is just my Obviously, this is what I've been working on, so I'm invested in it. <laughs> um, and I think it's worth doing, but uh, is it going to be sufficient? I don't know. I would I would prioritize um, electoral reform, local government reform to make it more democratic, uh, try to um, make some of these government institutions and agencies um, smaller so that they can be more accessible to um, citizens. And I think that and then maybe changing the built infrastructure in a way that makes people more in touch with nature and with each other. And um, so that's where like cities and public transport and active transport are not just important because they reduce emissions or better for the environment. They're actually important because they change the way that uh, residents and citizens interact with each other and nature and that in and of itself um, I think grows the constituency for more progressive change. This is fascinating to me because we so 
rarely in, in kind of New Zealand politics media get to have discussions about structural strategy um, or, or change in this way. Um, it's often, I, I guess, charitably issues-based, um, but just seems to be what's in the news. Um, how, I guess this comes um, back to some of the questions around communication, but if you're trying to do this and then there are these issue-based um, conversations that are important to the electorate, um, as whatever that means, um, alongside the caucus uh, and your staff as actors within that system, how do you communicate that stuff to the electorate and have, I guess, almost dual strategies in terms of implementation? And how do you bring people with you while doing that? Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, um, I thought, I, and I guess this, this was one of the, one of the points that I was trying to get at earlier, which is that a surprising fact about human psychology, or maybe it's not surprising, but one that we've ignored is that um, people seem to be more open to new ideas and doing more when they feel good about themselves and feel good about government. And so maybe that's where the positive comms like is like actually kind of talking up our ability to do more on climate change. Um, look at what the Greens have achieved. And, and actually it does seem to be growing confidence amongst the people who aren't closest to the issue, who we need to be more confident and more engaged. Um, but how do we do that in a way? All, I mean, I personally would probably do things uh, differently. Like I really prioritize um, connecting with the NGOs and the activists on the ground and talking to them and making sure that they see me as their ally. Um, and that I'm listening to them, like I'm asking them, you know, what we need to do. And and I guess and one more example that's not very green, but when I was an associate health minister, because I was a minister for women and I'd had a baby, I ended up really prioritizing um, primary maternity and uh, midwives because they, I mean, primary maternity was like in a state of collapse and midwives are not being paid enough. And so I really fought for more money uh, for them. And really just speaking openly and honestly and having my staff be really, really honest with midwives, um, they really trusted us at the end. They knew we were fighting for them, even though we didn't get as much as they wanted. They were, you know, they 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 knew that. And so I do think it is possible as a government minister to do that. We were walking a fine line. Like, I think um, I got in trouble <laughs> with the prime minister once when she rang me because she'd been um, stopped on some issue and um, she was like, I'm not saying that your office leaked this. Of course, you, they never would. And, you know, but clearly. And uh, and I was like, no, 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 of course not. <laughs> um, and I ended up just lobbying her on my midwife paper um, for cabinet, which, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, how do I put this? It's just like, I think it is possible to do it better. All right. And I think it's possible to... Um, and important for the green climate minister to try and communicate these struggles and alliance with um, the people who are the activists and not to overly um, apologize for the inadequacies of government action. But I guess um, some people find that easier than others to do. And um, sometimes I think that uh, 
for some people, if they've like law, if they fought for something and they've lost it, they've rationalized to themselves and say, well, this is the best we could get. And then they go out and say that. And that's probably not the thing to say. It's probably better to say, look, I fought really hard for this thing and I wasn't able to get it. And this is what I'm going to do in the future. And this is how I see the pathway to do more. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, I wanted to prompt you to have this exact, uh, talk about this exact issue because I think that's part of it and not just on climate, to be honest, like it is, it's, it's part of human psychology. Like you're saying, it's hard to, um, acknowledge that you have to represent something that you don't actually support hundred percent. Um, but you just have to in this position, right. Especially in this exact position where, you know, you're not exactly, having to push the barrow that you would want to have pushed. Like there's, there's stuff you have to, um, you being not you, but uh, both James and Marama, given the realities of electoral maths, um, have to push stuff that they wouldn't necessarily want to push. Um, and that's just, that's part of the job, but there's, there's ways of doing that. Right. So I guess that's a, it's a comms question. Like so many things in politics, like there's ways of doing it that uh, people will like and people won't like. But for a, a party that has been as grassroots as the Greens has been, especially, you know, in the in the past with a really kind of deep rooted connection to climate activism and environmental activism. And I'm glad you drew the connection with kind of biodiversity stuff. We had a conversation with Kevin Haig a while ago that was talking about, you know, connecting biodiversity stuff to climate stuff. And people tend to leave that part out of the equation these days, which I think is a bit of a shame. Um, there's, you know, just as much of a catastrophe, um, you have to do that, right? Otherwise you're going to lose your primary kind of constituency and leaving that kind of hollow center is probably more disastrous than I think, um, a lot of people in the green party would admit, because it's not, it's not just that one, one or 2%, it's the one or 2% of most active, most vociferously kind of supportive members, which has like repercussions and a ripple effect in terms of those are the people who are doing most of the door knocking, most of the uh, leaflet delivery, most of the putting up uh, signs. That's like changing the constituency of the party. Isn't that it? is an interesting question. I mean, I don't think we have any data on that. I don't think we know um, if the people who are, um, who voted reopen nominations are the people who do all that work. I mean, I'm not saying they don't. I'm just saying we don't know. And that's, yeah, I actually that's, think that sorry, there specific. has been a lot of interest for some people getting involved in the party in the internal machinations and politics more so than going out and campaigning, getting people to vote for the Greens would be an observation I would make in some quarters, not everywhere. That's not to say that dissatisfaction with the leadership is illegitimate. It's just what I've seen since the reopen nominations is um, tons of people turning out to meetings who hadn't were kind of like things were fine, you know, but COVID probably um, caused them to not be as engaged and now they're re-engaging. So I don't know if the dissatisfaction is as dire as it seemed in terms of, and that, and that's what I would argue. And it's not to say that's not real and it's not there and that, that things couldn't be better, but I don't know to my perspective is we're like a year out from an election where we might, actually have the most power we've ever had and we're pulling well and the alternative to a labor green government is really really bad <laughs> so maybe the greens should like try to focus on how we 
you know, what are our priorities for negotiation? How are we ready for that? How are we ready to make the most of three years if we get it? And most of those negotiations to make the most change that we can um, and, and also make sure that we don't end up with a national and act government um, because that would be really dire. Yeah, yeah, for sure. To be clear, I wasn't talking about reopen nominations. I was meaning in general. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Part of a conversation about um, losing, as you were saying before, like losing more kind of extremist or activist kind of voters um, and roping in ex-Labor voters, for example. I think I think there's a risk there that um, this is part of, I think, the risk of thinking of voters as kind of discrete um, mm. categories is that we maybe underestimate the value of some numbers, right? Like some some supporters are worth more than others in electoral terms because those are the ones who are doing stuff. Like uh, this isn't this wasn't meant to be a comment on reopen nominations. I have no idea who those like <laughs> who voted reopen nominations and who didn't. Um, like presumably there was some like different constituencies. Were, yeah, totally. I think there were. I think there were very different constituencies. Um, like, which is clear because nobody ran to replace James, right? If it had been an organized thing, somebody would have run. And like James said as much on Facebook when he was like, I didn't, I haven't done a good job of balancing being climate minister yeah. with the leader of the party. So he gets that he hasn't connected with the party as much as he should have and needs to, to be the leader of a party. Um, and I'm on, record saying that if nobody ran against him he'd get you know he's going to get 99 percent of the vote it's not going to be a problem all of the matthew hoodens and stuff thinking that there's some kind of conspiracy to destabilize the leadership are just you know having a kind of wide-eyed dreamscape <laughs> <laughs> ayahuasca bloody um good time and good for them i hope they i hope they enjoy the next few weeks until they're proven wrong um but yeah i think it's it, it's clearly kind of a a long-standing kind of dissatisfaction in different sectors of the party. And I hope that James manages to remedy that by connecting with the grassroots better than he's managed to. Yeah, and definitely. And and maybe it is like an opportunity to for us to weirdly be in a stronger position going into next year because, you know, it is really important that people are able to be heard and um, and hopefully their concerns addressed and I, I really want us to be able to focus on being ready for negotiations and being ready to get the best, most transformation, transformational policies that we can get um, that will enable more, more progressive change in a situation where things could globally go quite weird, quite fast. And incredibly charitable way to phrase it. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying not to be like, I am actually quite a pessimist, right? Like I I feel very like Cassandra-esque, like that's my, and yet here I am on this podcast trying to talk up a positive view. <laughs> All is not lost. And someone, someone's got to have the half full glass, right? No, but I don't, I don't even have it. It's weird. Cause like, I definitely, you know, was feeling like, you know, I understand, like, I was feeling like, oh, what, what are we doing? How are we going to change things? This is not, we're like, we're not really budging. And then, like, you know, our polling just, like, ticked up. And I was like, you know what, maybe I'm just, it's hard to be connected to what huge numbers of people are thinking. Like, uh, even as a politician who speaks to a lot of people, 
when I've kept track of it in some of the years when I've been the most active and had the most public speaking, not being a minister, I think, you know, maybe like talk to 10,000 people directly, you know, maybe 20,000, like probably not, you know, it's probably like maybe through the media, but directly it was, it was probably a lot less than 10,000. And so like trying to understand where, 250,000 votes are going to come from or 300,000 and understand like what is the mood of these people and what is cutting through and reaching them and what is the general vibe and how are they feeling about the Greens it's really hard because I think we're surrounded all by bubbles even more so with social media because it helps connect us to people who already like share the same views as us and that tends to reinforce our perception and it's really like I the only thing we can really go on I think data wise is things like polling and polling is flawed as well but it's generally like pretty close you know it gives you that things can't be like going catastrophically wrong but they they could all of a sudden just based on one event so (laughs) that brings us to the um last topic we wanted to cover um talking about the 2023 election um alongside the kind of electoral groups or or kind of what issues are going to grab people um and the cost of living crisis. Uh, so, you know, this is a, a metric we've seen change rapidly if we're talking polling, um, where Labour were uh, kind of dominating the, the top 20 most uh, important issues lists, um, like uh, to be seen by the electorate as the um, party to solve those, those problems. Uh, Greens always keep a couple of those up their sleeve um, in the environment kind of areas. Uh, but, you know, since earlier in the year, National's been kind of ahead on, on cost of living, which is just ludicrous to me, um, given that we know what their policies are. Um, you know, one of the, the conversations that was happening around some of the leadership stuff was... Yeah, okay, so there is a Green membership, but there's also this wider group of Green supporters and voters. How do the Greens differentiate on that from from Labour? Bringing those uh, those two groups together and maybe uh, either bringing in more members um, or bringing in more voters who are dissatisfied with Labour and um, looking elsewhere. I think it's really important that we find a way to reframe this. And I think it's a missed opportunity from Labour. Like, I think that they have, well, it's going to be difficult because they're in government. Um, If people are feeling the pain of high prices, they're inevitably going to associate that with the government of the day. And then probably a lot of people will just automatically flip to the the largest opposition party being national. Um, and then, of course, National just talk, you know, I mean, they don't say anything coherent or logically consistent about this topic, but they they have that brand of like, we care about money. So if you care about money, you should vote for us. <laughs> and um, of course, like their actual solutions aren't going to help people who are really struggling with cost of living. And we can keep pointing that out rationally. And I feel like the media has been pretty good about that, pointing out that the tax cuts are mainly going to benefit people on high incomes and not those who are really struggling. But there'll be a lot of people who aren't, you know, paying close attention and who just kind of go with the brand thing of like, yeah, the money party, the money party will get us more money. Um, 
And uh, so for the Greens, I see an opportunity for us um, to kind of seize that ground. And you've seen some overseas, um, there's been a big push around corporate profits and pointing out that some of the corporates, especially in those areas where it's very like difficult to get like true competition um they sort of they get a lot of help from the government um and they're operating in a space where they can uh, wield market power um so in new zealand that's like the banks um the petrol companies because of the ukraine crisis and the fact that the government uh kept the petrol tax cut um we saw their margins go, you know, were really high and luckily, you know, it dropped a bit, but um, then it looked really stupid that labor continued with the petrol tax cut. But, but Julianne, I thought Megan Woods assured us that um, if they did start to profiteer, she'd tell them off or something. Yeah, well, she did. And then the price dropped, but it was right after they committed to six months of petrol tax cut. And the diesel users are just totally rewarding the system with their rugs. So road user charges um so energy companies is a big one the big gen tailors in new zealand um probably have been making excess profit for a really long time so it's not just a one-off thing but it's like a continual problem uh supermarkets obviously and um i think that and building construction you know like construction supplies and like fletchers um so those would be the areas where i think we really need to link and explain to people because what nationals kind of managed to do and probably 30 years of neoliberalism is kind of make tax a bad word. And so anytime we talk about taxes, it's bad because people are like, oh, I don't want to pay tax. Um, but if we're talking about like, oh, wait, actually, it's the, it's these corporates and their investors are getting excess profit by overcharging you. And actually, one of the solutions to that is that actually we need to make them pay more tax on their profits, especially when they're making excess profit. Oh, and look, the Tories in the UK are doing this with a windfall tax. Um, and even in the United States, they're talking about an excess profit tax. So there are these public policy tools that government can use to ensure that um, when that you don't just get um, private, the private sector or a small number of people, investors benefiting from things that have nothing to do with their enterprise and what they're doing. It's just sort of either government, government support in some cases, um, like during COVID. It's totally right to have that universal government support during a crisis. And the way we make this fair is that when you're doing really, really well and you're making excess profit, you pay a higher tax rate, you pay more tax on some of that excess profit. And then we can use that for support to raise benefits, to um, invest in services that are going to benefit people like free public transport or um, make sure our health system is up to scratch. And I don't know how much luck we'll have getting cut through on this issue, but I do feel like it's has a certain resonance and it's changing that perspective from neoliberalism neoliberalism that was like oh you can't touch the private sector you just gotta let them do their thing they're the ones creating the jobs and um government should stay away from that and be as small as possible i feel that there is a potential quite a big political shift in support following COVID, especially for people to understand that government does need to be there in a crisis and that it's right that those who are benefiting the most um, 
give back more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially in New Zealand, like I, I say this on almost every podcast, I feel like, but we've never had like real, you know, free market capitalism in New Zealand. There's obvious kind of infrastructure reasons. We're a small country, um, no big institutional kind of actor in New Zealand has succeeded without government assistance. Like we, we do pick winners. That's all we do. Like it's, it's dishonest to pretend that that's not the case. Right. Um, and that's the case with the big Aussie banks. It's the case with the uh, energy gen tailors, as he was saying, like supermarkets, all these things, we, that that's how capitalism in New Zealand has functioned. And um, neoliberalism has only kind of increased the aggressive way in which we've, um, you know, differentiated between the winners and the losers. So it's not even, this isn't even a kind of, you know, socialism versus capitalism argument. This is a straight kind of equality versus inequality kind of argument. Yeah, it's barely picking winners, right? It's, yeah, like, it's rigging the competition. It is. And we always have rigged the competition, but it's like, it's it's fine to admit that. And I think um, it, it will get cut through to have that kind of point because it really gets to the like money in your pocket conversation that everyone's kind of feeling at the moment. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's like a huge, um, potential for arguments like that to get through, even though, you know, establishment media will struggle if it looks too complicated or if the, some of the buzzwords aren't the ones they wanted to run on the six o'clock news, they'll have to, because it's the exact kind of thing in the same way as the way that the wealth tax at the last election, um, was something that a lot of people didn't want to touch with a 10 foot pole, but polled extremely well. And people loved people like people like this stuff. It's like this kind of left-wing populist grift to the mill is exactly the kind of thing you need to be doing more of. And that's awesome that you're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that you're hundred percent right. And I mean, I, the, the challenge for me, and this is one of the things that I am very conscious of is how um, using terms like neoliberalism and capitalism or anti-capitalist, like I could totally do that with you and with, some people on Twitter, but like with the general public, I feel like how do we talk about these things? People don't have a shared understanding of the definition because I feel like it's it's only certain people who are educated in a certain way who have a certain idea of that. And it's not even sure that we'd have the same idea of what that literally means. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, I, I think it's absolutely possible. And Bernie Sanders is a good example of someone who I think has um, been really good at reframing the debate and the discourse in the United States. And the United States is somewhat similar to New Zealand, not entirely, because um, New Zealand can, a lot of people who are alive, like my in-laws, um, remember the great socialist days and, you know, like fondly, <laughs> they're like, Oh, yeah, we used to have like a New Zealand rail service that had buses and it was like there were buses everywhere. You could just catch a bus everywhere and it was really cheap and you could get catch a bus to Kaitaia. You could catch the rail um, a certain part of the way and then it would go all the way up to Cape Brianga. And, you know, they remember that stuff. Whereas in the United States, it, I would say that generation um, was really like influenced by propaganda Um yeah, so I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that, about how um, we talk about these things in a way that signals to the left who are really erudite mm. um, that, yes, we're on their side, but no, I'm not like putting anti-capitalist in my um, Twitter bio or whatever, because I don't, 
I feel like it would just raise more questions no, for no, the general electorate. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't, tend to. Don't appeal to nerdy lefties. We're the last people you need to be appealing to. <laughs> We're the only ones who are going to read the policies. Like, don't don't put any titles or, like, buzzwords in there for us. We're, yeah, no. I, I think you nailed it um, when you said it's about shared understanding of, um, you know, of particular, not particular terms, but particular concepts, right? Um, and... Uh, maybe an over-reliance, especially in the New Zealand context, which is, a, you know, we've got a pretty narrow um, media politics window here uh, compared to basically every other country in the world um, where people can run with those terms and make a joke out of them or say, like, what does neoliberalism even mean? No, I mean, it has specific meanings, like, but it's so easy for opponents of, of those kind of discussions to get past that, that it by nature, if you're trying to communicate it, you have to reframe it in a way uh, that short circuits potential arguments against it, right? Um, and what Sanders has done just about around like um, discussions on fairness um, and comparative stuff, um, you know, comparing workers to CEOs or whatever has been really powerful um, because of that. And again, different context. Um, I'm, I mean... This is part of why we created one of 200 um, is so that at least on the left, uh, we were able to have these discussions in the first place um, because there hasn't really even been a space for that um, even between leftists. Um, as you alluded to, a lot of those terms are contested um, and broadening that out into the wider electorate. You know, I, I don't think it's that people... Um, don't understand it if you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, but it's not at the breadth of communication that needs to be happening um, for electoralism. And that's really the major challenge. Uh, find some good anecdotes, I, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I guess the other thing is just resources to be able to act and communicate as soon as something that grabs the public's um attention is, is on the table where you're where the left is hijacking those conversations before act or national can um i i don't know if we have a framework for doing that um electorally or on left media uh, at this point in time no but I, I don't know i feel good do you guys feel good like i mean you can feel bad but <laughs> lot to feel bad about and pessimistic about but I feel I feel weirdly optimistic about 2023 and about where the debate might be based on like how much it's changed if you just think back to what the Greens were standing mm -hmm. for in 2014 versus 2020 um it's actually quite uh, it's a much more ambitious platform and I think sometimes yeah it's it's worth like being like okay that's sweet actually we are like there and at the same time we're hopefully going to be in a position to have more ministers and have more executive roles where we actually could make hundreds of decisions that help make New Zealand more democratic more fair start to address the ecological crisis that we're facing I'm the eternal optimist of um the entire uh rotating cast um, at one of 200 so um i i agree with you uh, i'm i'm a little more optimistic maybe even um 
just appalling over the last few years and seeing what's happening globally. Um, the populace at large is ready for this stuff. Uh, and whenever you put like the Green Party policy in front of people, it is easy, easily communicated. You know, it, it, it is in the language that is easy to understand. Uh, it is obvious to people when you talk it through with them. It's just about having that conversation in the first place and, um, you know, with, with people. Yeah, with enough people. Uh, and I hate to use the term, but it's that uh, the potential of it, right? It feels like there's far more potential to get things moving forward than now I yeah I haven't really felt electorally for a long time um it feels like if we take the right steps um the outcome will be good now if whether or not we that that occurs is a, is another matter um and there's a there's lot of work a whole to lot do. that's out of our control I mean if labor's vote collapses at the expense of national, there's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> but I mean, there's a, there's work for them to do as well, right? Um, and yeah, I I also don't think that like being pessimistic is is useful. Um, and if we're talking strategically, uh, because you end up in the same position as um, the way that you're describing uh, the institution of the public service, where you're more likely to be looking to mitigate loss. Um, or mitigate risk than you are to be driving towards like what we know is is a necessity at this point. Um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to next year. Yeah, like, it's what it comes down to. But also, I'm a like politics freak. It's only pessimism of the intellect, Kyle. It's not real pessimism. <laughs> what a horrible turn of phrase. <laughs> That's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> I, I feel I feel weirdly hopeful, but I think there's a lot of work to be done and it'll be really interesting to see how the local body elections turn out. And there's actually reasonably progressive mayoral candidates um, in most of the major cities. I can't speak for Hamilton or Toronto. <laughs> I don't actually know what's going on there. But um, uh, David Mates in Christchurch mm -hmm. is pretty interesting. And I am, obviously we've got a green mayor in Deneen who's looking good to get back in and then Tori Fano in Wellington and um if so Collins in Auckland you know it has to be it has to be it has to be Collins come on <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he's running a really great campaign I I think it's really hard to say where it's going to go because there's so many undecideds and there's such low turnout but um again like you know if I feel like if if the work is done and people and can get people on board, if you if you're able to have those conversations, people will get on board and they will vote for progressive candidates. Um, and we've had um, some episodes with candidates uh, from around New Zealand recently as well, and just like such fantastic people. Um, and you know, if they are talking to someone who is at all receptive, they will get them on site because the moment needs it. Um, and there's a lot more hope in that, uh, than, you know, saying, oh, we'll give you a tax cut so you can take that for yourself just so, just so you can survive, you know, there's a lot more hope in saying, hey, we're going to move forward and do this together. I think some of the research that we had, um, a couple of years ago, I mean, this was probably prior to the 2017 election showed that, um, people 
agreed with our policy, but they didn't they didn't have faith that we could actually get it through and that we would actually, you know, and I think that um, maybe hopefully an advantage of having had ministers and been mm-hmm. in government is that that changes um, the uh, the viability of people voting green and believing that we actually can be in government and make those changes. And I totally accept that, you know, one of the risks is that for the people who are most concerned about climate change, that they feel disillusioned. And I guess that's kind of why we have to get better at communicating the constraints of the situation that we're in. Um, But for the wider electorate, I do think being positive does seem to bring more people in. And and that's just such a hard line to walk of being honest and positive. (laughs) Hey, thank you so much for joining us this evening, Julianne. It's, It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Ah, it's been a pleasure for me. Great to see you guys. And thanks for doing this. Anything you wanted to um, get in there with before we tidy it up, Philip? No, that's awesome. Thanks, Julianne. We've covered a lot of interesting areas that I wish more um, MPs were more forthcoming about, I guess, across the across the spectrum. Like, I think there are all these kind of deep, long-standing um, structural and cultural kind of issues in, in government and parliament and politics in general in New Zealand and I know when you're in the kind of um when you're at the coalface to use like the least apt metaphor possible um it's hard to kind of step back and have that kind of conversation at the same time because I know you're kind of fighting every day as well right um but from the outside it's such a different vibe right you know when you're when you're looking into an institution like that we're looking through uh through a a glass darkly or whatever kind of metaphor you want to use and seeing kind of the the shadows coming out and we only we only see what we can see right so it's it's hard to remember that people outside that kind of silo can't see everything that you can see and the same from the same way it's hard to remember from the outside there are things going on internally so all we can do is continue to bug people (laughs) like yourself to continue to like front up to conversations like this so yeah just thanks i guess it's i know it's a hard position to be in anytime it's easier for me now that i'm not a minister i'm gonna get myself in trouble i can't believe i'm a politician because i really find it difficult to not just (laughs) well if you want to get yourself um, in more trouble in the future um Feel free. We're going to get um, Gaurav Sharma on later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, jokes aside, um, if you are a progressive politician, um, if you're, you're ex-politics, um, if you're Labour or Greens, maybe a couple of other parties out there, um, and you want to have a, a longer form, uh, nuanced conversation about these things um, and and not just um, run PR at us, uh, get in touch. Um, happy to host people. Happy to have these discussions. Um it's really important to have that kind of independent media uh, and, you know, such a, a crunched media environment here. There's so much in that conversation we just had, which we often do not see in, in political media. Thanks again, Julianne. Thank you to my co-host, Philip. Thank you to our audience. Uh, like, share, subscribe. Uh, and our Patreon link is in the summary if you want to support us. That's been another episode of One of 200. We'll catch you on the weekend. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless
No 